Today, we are raring to break some dishes with this, our second podcast episode. Producing this podcast has been, well, just a little more work than we imagined. Right, John? But seriously, John and I are doing this because we feel a strong sense of urgency to do something about the situation we've all found ourselves in. It feels like the planet is heaving and sputtering and spewing and changing in unfathomable ways. We need to find solutions and take action as quickly as possible. And we think design can have a big role. We're excited about our next guest. Thank you again for tuning in. I'm Verda Alexander. And I'm John Strasner. Today, we're going to be talking about another pressing global crisis and somebody who's found a way to kick it in the teeth. When we talked with Oliver Campbell of Dell Computer, we were talking about Dell's response to the growing ocean plastic crisis. There's another crisis that deserves our crosshairs, ghost fishing. Have you ever heard of it? Don't Google it unless you're prepared to be met with a plethora of horrible images of dead sea turtles, sharks, and seals caught in carelessly discarded fishing nets. It's horrible to think that our species could be responsible for such a horrible crisis, but we can just add it to the list. You see, over 640,000 tons of fishing gear is left in our oceans every year. Most nets are made from nylon, or other plastic components that can last for centuries. According to a 2018 study, ghost nets make up 46% of the Great Pacific garbage patch, almost half. Crazy. And remember, they never go away. They just break down into microplastics that make it even easier to get into the food chain. In fact, a single net found drifting in the North Pacific contained 99 dead seabirds, two dead sharks, and more than 200 fish of various species. Ghost fishing does not discriminate in what it catches. And today, we talk to David Stover, one of the founders of a company called Boreo. They take fishing nets out of the ocean, clean and recycle them, and turn them into nylon pellets to be used in manufacturing. And today, we have chairs, water bottle baskets, skateboards, surf fins, and sunglasses getting made from this material. Amazing. When we turn this stuff into something valuable, people aren't so quick to let it slip into the ocean. So, David is an avid surfer and grew up on Block Island. If you don't know where that is, it's right off the coast of Rhode Island. Although he went to Lehigh and graduated into a career in consulting, how could you grow up on Block Island? and not grow up to save the ocean. We are so lucky to have David with us today to tell us about the incredible journey in building Boreo, a company that's getting fishing nets out of the ocean and turning them into something valuable. Welcome, David Stover. Tell us about some of the challenges that you had just getting this thing off the ground, because I'm thinking about the work that you had to do um, just to convince fishermen to change the way that they were used to doing things for generations and generations? We started the company really on a mission to find a way to keep plastic out of our ocean. That was our kind of kind of ambiguous goal of recognizing that our ocean's filling up with plastic and it wasn't sustainable and we wanted to do something about it. And we started sinking our teeth into that it really became apparent that, you know, we're not going to be able to tackle this 
like a lot of our environmental crisis and social crisis we have, you look at everything at a broad spectrum and it's overwhelming. It's like, what's the point of even starting? We're so far behind the curve that we really need to find something to kind of sink our teeth into. And that kind of got us down this track, luckily, of just finding a tangible starting point. Like, what can we help out with? Where do we serve a purpose in this realm of solutions that need to take place? And so we started identifying waste streams of plastic going into the ocean. A lot of people recognize bottles and straws that have been talked about and other pieces. But as a whole, we looked at recycling infrastructure, the types of waste that were going into the ocean. And we identified this issue of fishing nets by talking to fishermen and talking to governments and NGOs and realizing that this was a big chunk of the waste going in the ocean, about 10% or more a year. And unfortunately, one of the most harmful forms of waste, right? This is webbing and net that's designed to catch commercially around the world. It still does a good job of that when it's lost or left in the ocean. And so we started asking questions of fisheries and understanding that for us, we didn't even realize, like most people, that fishing nets, this fabric and cloth material was plastic, but actually most of the nets are all polymer, plastic-based material. And like a single-use bottle, it has a life that's longer than a bottle, like it might be a couple years instead of a couple couple turns of drinking water. But after a couple years, there's still the challenge of this waste having to be put into a landfill or burned or disposed of. And so we really pitched a project in 2013 with the government of Chile to basically educate fisheries that this waste was a problem and we wanted to collect it back and figure out a model where we could collect that waste back, turn it into products and really provide an end of life for it. And so, yeah, the challenge we really had was how do we convince this industry and these fishermen and these communities that what we're doing is real and it's possible. And it, to be honest, in the beginning, I think a lot of the fishermen and fisheries we talked to just heard the story of how we were going to take their nets and make products and just thought we were crazy or this was a harebrained idea that wasn't going to go anywhere. And fortunately, most of the ones that we talked to were willing to participate and gave us material. And then I think the breakthrough moment was when we started making our own products. We started testing skateboards was our first kind of interest. And so we were melting these nets down and putting them into molds and then taking it back to the fisheries and saying, well, here's your nets. Here's the waste that was previously left on a beach or at best put into a landfill and sometimes polluting our ocean. And, and this is what we're able to do with it. And that's really where the idea, once we had that physical product in 2013, that's really the first thing that kind of launched us as a business. You feel like you had to have that community engaged and on board, huh? Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, a lot of people in trying to solve problems, their heart's in the right place, but they're not always able to engage with the key stakeholders. And even, even in our case, like obviously we don't try to um, put a stamp of approval on everything commercial fishermen are doing. It's there's a lot of issues with the way that we fish. Arguably, we get a food source, but it's not always the most sustainable thing. Um, but we knew that we we needed to work with them. And so we needed to develop a relationship to say, hey, we're, like you guys have a lot of challenges in your industry, but we know that this waste is a tangible one and we want to help you. And this is the way that the model could work. Um, and fortunately, you know, they were able to see the light and 
even if it was just interest probably of like, let's see what these guys come up with. They were willing to, to participate, you know? So I wanted to back up just a little bit more. You make it sound so simple. Oh, I had this interest <laughs> in plastics in the ocean. And I, this, this year I started my own personal challenge of, of becoming an activist and protesting and marching and, and doing what I could within my company and within my industry to challenge ourselves to do more. And I, I really feel like we, each and every one of us needs to, to, to change or sacrifice or whatever it is to really address some of these real, real issues that we have. Yep. Um, but you uprooted yourself and moved to Chile. <laughs> I think that's major. And I mean, whatever possessed you, it, it just seems like such a crazy life you turn to, to take that big of a stand. Yeah. I mean, I, I think um, the people around you are really important. I, I think timing's really important. I mean, I was, um, you know, went to university in the U.S., worked professionally as a consultant for five years and luckily got an opportunity to move to Australia. You know, I was 26 years old. I had some people around me who were in similar position, young in our careers. We didn't have families. We didn't have mortgages. We were kind of living that expat life, working and living abroad. And so I would say that looking back, if it didn't happen during that period of when I was living abroad without all these bigger commitments happening, I think I was in a headspace, luckily traveling in Southeast Asia and Australia in that zone of like, my mind was kind of opening up to the bigger things happening in the world. And on a career standpoint, you know, it was rewarding from a financial basis. I was doing relatively well in the consulting space, but I realized pretty quickly I wasn't moving the needle with my work, right? I wasn't adding anything. And Ben and Kevin, who was fortunate to start Barreo with similar positions, we kind of came together and we're like, we just want to find more purpose and work. And so looking back, I mean, we took a risk, but like for us, it, it didn't seem like a risk because it was always, let's walk away for a little while explore these ideas and this interest that we have to do something different. And it, of course, it takes a little bit of luck, right? You got to have a sound idea. You got to have some luck. The timing's got to be good. And really, you got to take advantage of the opportunities. And I always say that like, if we would have foreseen the last eight years when we started, I don't know if any of us would have signed up for that path, mm. right? Because like, if you would have foreseen all the challenges and getting something off the ground, you probably would there's too many risks to agree to it. But fortunately, we were kind of blinded by the, the difficult path that we actually had and how the cards were really stacked against us to make a career out of it by just looking at the challenges in front of us. And so it was kind of these minute milestones of, hey, we just need to get to a product so we can show people what we're trying to do. And then it was, let's just, we need to raise some money based on that so that we can expand this. And then just being guided by that mission of, we know what we're doing. We think what we're doing is the right thing. We're doing this to try to help and keep plastic out of the environment. Let's just let that be our beacon. And I think that's really been kind of a guiding light for our team. And yeah, I think it is important to have a kind of a, a call to safety net around you. Like I, you hear these stories of people that get stuff off the ground by themselves. And I, I just don't believe them. I'm always like, well, yes, we can accomplish so much individually. But like, if you're, if you started a billion dollar company, you know that, you know, all the stories of Apple and everything else, that there were some smart people that were really key to the success of those brands. Well, I love how you've moved the needle individually and collectively. And 
So, okay, so back to the fishermen in Chile. So, so you paid them for the nets and they probably thought you were crazy. And you came back with the skateboards and they thought you were crazy. <laughs> and then you took a percentage of your profits from the skateboard sales and, and gave it back to the community and created, helped them implement programs and workshops. I feel like that's such an amazing circular economy story of empowerment and driving real change. Tell us a little yeah. bit more. Yeah, I mean, I think luckily um, Ben on our team worked in sustainability professionally. And so he had experience, one at the corporate level, implementing these LCA or life cycle assessment analysis. So seeing the impact of product. And then at a personal level, he had done some aid work in Africa and, and other parts of the world. And going into it, we always said that, um, you know, a lot of people look at sustainability as doing something good for the environment. But we had always reminded ourselves that sustainability was developing a model that didn't go away right away. Like we wouldn't be doing anyone any benefit if we just went to some coastline, purchased some material, made some recycled products, and then that was the end of it. Like the goal was we need to engage the communities and they need to see value in what we're doing. And really, it has evolved a little bit because now we work with different fisheries, right? So we work with small artisanal fisheries, which are, you know, small colettas and groups of fishermen that live and work in the same area all the way up to larger artisanal fisheries and commercial fisheries, which is like industrial, more on the industrial side. And so when we work with these large companies now that fish, we actually get a lot of buy-in from them right away. So they say, we'll, we'll help you dispose of our nets so you'll collect them and recycle them. And we'll also help you get community projects off the ground. And so we put funds towards, we did a solar project with a school um, we've done some support for other local collection of other plastics and, and products locally. There's some projects going on now in Peru that they're doing some case studies about developing business plans for some of these small communities. So we've always tried to engage these fisheries beyond just, we'll take your nets and then that's it. It's We know that we want the fisheries and the communities around the fisheries to see like, hey, these guys are trying to do things the right way it's not necessarily us going in either and telling them what they have to do. Like we look for a local NGO or a local company or a local consultant that implements these programs. And then we help, we help fund that, you know, cause for us, like we, we are a for-profit business. We're not a nonprofit. We see business as a, a way to change really to scale and change the way products are made and businesses are run. And through that for-profit model, you know, we really see the ability to direct the sale of products towards doing good for our planet. And that's kind of um, kind of the mission that we're on. That's the ultimate sustainability right there. If you can show companies that you can be profitable and sustainable, they go hand in hand, then, then it's a model that survives, right? And, and that's when your impact, you know, when companies don't look at this as just doing something good, but they realize there's an economic opportunity here. Like I, I on the broader level, like obviously we're engaged in a lot of the environmental issues beyond even plastic. And you look at kind of the climate crisis that we're all in, and um, you look at something like the fossil fuel industry and this extraction of fuels and the burned carbon that's going to the atmosphere, which is leading to rising sea temperatures and acidification of our reefs and all of the kind of cascading impacts. And then you start to look at the economics of solar and wind and electric transportation. And as the cost of that is all coming down, it's becoming clear, and even some of the largest oil companies in the world, it's becoming clear to them that economically, 
this is the path forward to make money as well. And like, I think when we really cross that spectrum of like, we're not asking you to do this, to do the right thing and save humanity and the planet. This is also a way for you to sustain your business. Because if you keep engaging in these archaic activities, you're not just going to make people on the planet extinct. Your business model first is going to go extinct. And I think as a world economy that we really need to cross that transition and companies really need to really lean into that and say, sure, there's some risk in investing in new technologies and really a more responsible way to do business. But the long-term benefits aren't just to the planet and people, it's it's to your business. You're going to get rewarded in the consumer response and traction for your products as well. So, Where does it start, David? Because you're, you've talked a lot about community, but now you're talking a lot about a corporate model. Mm-hmm. I mean, what catalyzes something like this? Is it, is it policy? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think you really at this point need a combination of consumer-driven trends, consumer-driven just once within products. And certainly you need support at the government level. You need support at the community level. And I think you have to have aligned interests, right? Like if, if you had a model stepping away from recycled fishnets, if you had a model for recycling that you knew could work and you had a market for people to buy plastic, but there was a local policy where the government was building, say, an incinerator, like a, a, a facility to burn waste, and they were just so focused on getting material to that incinerator, then that local policy would basically wipe out your, your sustainable business model to recycle plastic. And so you really need to have an alignment from government to really promote policies that are beneficial towards these solutions. And it's hard work. Like I think we operate in a pretty niche industry, right? But I, I at a broad level, you know, there's a lot of complexities that go into it, but you can be sure that if companies are getting pressure from consumers to do the right thing and they understand the economics of, of investing in more responsible supply chains and, and more responsible solutions for our environment, that's going to lead to the policy level, right? Our, our elected officials are going to look at population and, and what their interests and demands are, and then that's going to help support getting these models off the ground. So it all is interconnected. It's just a matter of getting at, getting the awareness and buy-in really from all levels. Yeah. And and will you get behind policy change? We have. Yeah. We, we've, yeah. Um, we've supported specifically in the U.S. policy around discarded fishing gear at the global level. Ben on our team sits on a panel for proposing industry-wide change. I mean, it's a narrow example, but like how should fisheries control their waste? How should they keep track of their waste? How can we provide end-of-life solutions? And that's kind of like a broader um, piece even for plastics and the environment is is the way that it needs to work is that you can't have industry competing against activists for, for too long because it's if all the interests are in like a polluting industry, they have a lot of money, they have a lot of influence really need to get the momentum with activists and consumers and businesses to stand up to say that we want to do the right thing. So, Yeah. I know a lot of people in our industry really will talk about how uh, U.S. Green Buildings Council and uh, the LEED certification Mm -hmm. program kind of drove building codes to get more aggressive Mm -hmm. and more environmental. Sometimes I think, you know, the corporate world needs a little bit of a push or a little sure. bit of a tug, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I, like this is another, I, it just came across my radar last week, but it's a great example. 
there was a like every company that makes a product has to ship stuff around the world. There was a pledge I saw led by a nonprofit, but it had all these companies signing up to basically say they didn't want their products to be transited through the Arctic because containers were looking to take paths through the Arctic Sea, which could disrupt melting of ice. And like, that's a good example of like the companies drive the economy. They support this transportation industry. If they all pledge, hey, we're not going to put our products through the Arctic, then the providers are are really influenced to do the right thing. And that's that's a great example of what we need to happen is, um, mm. you know, connecting the consumer with the company, with policy and getting everyone kind of to move in the same direction. Talk to us about scale. So Chile was a great success story. Are you implementing programs elsewhere or how are you how are you seeing the evolution of this? For us, you know, it, it, the writing was on the wall from the beginning. Like when we started making skateboards, we were going to have this cool niche environmental brand that was going to deliver this innovative product to the market. And that first business plan was based solely off the skateboard, obviously made from recycled fishing nets. But two years after we launched it, we were looking at a business case where these sales aren't going to sustain the growth of our recycling program. We don't see a path forward as a skateboard company, but all of the success has come from the recycling program. We're getting buy-in from governments, nonprofits, a lot of response from consumers. We were getting contacted by companies who wanted to purchase our material. And so that's that's what flipped for us. And we said, well, we should focus on the recycling and what we're good at and really find these companies that want to support the, the, um, the recycling program. And so that was the pivot point. That first year, 2013, we did about 10 tons of material, so about 10,000 kilograms, which visually is about a small shipping container. This year, we're on pace to do 600 tons of material, 600,000 kilograms, like over a million pounds, which is many, many shipping containers. And that's kind of the path that we see now is that if we can find the right companies who want to use this recycled material as opposed to a new material, then we can focus on scaling, replicating this program where we've been able to grow within Chile, which has been great. We've moved the program now to Peru and Argentina, which have been great kind of new markets for us. And we really, even in just the Pacific, like if you remove, <clears throat> if you remove Europe and um, Africa, just looking at Southeast Asia, North America, Central America, South America, kind of that zone, we see a lot of opportunity to kind of replicate the program. And so that's that's kind of our vision now is that we can kind of play this role of going into countries and even geographical hub areas, teaching them what we're doing and trying to replicate this approach, knowing that we were finding partners and finding end of life solutions for the material. Mm. And so for people that don't know, you're you're taking these nets, you're cleaning them, you're breaking them down and recycling them into little nylon pellets, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it has evolved, but essentially the recycling process, the the kind of the short version of the supply chain is that this material obviously meets an end of life. We educate the fisheries um, and the fishing communities and the fishermen. We basically act as the recipient of the end of life material. So we'll go with our network, our employees, our contractors, our logistics teams. We'll go physically to port to collect the material back from the boats or the the yards where the nets are repaired or anywhere the nets are collected. And then we'll bring that to kind of a central recycling facility that we operate. 
So it basically just looks like a giant warehouse with stacks of old fishing nets, nets that are clean, nets that are cut, nets that are pre-processed. And then our teams go through, which is a pretty manual process, they go through that material to prepare it for the next stages of recycling, which all those stages start basically with the nets being grinded and shredded kind of in a large blender. Think of like the old school lawnmower with the rotating blade. Nets going into that and it's turning into like a pillow fluff, like a light fabric material. And then that material essentially is being broken down through a couple of different processes now into this final product, which is a little nurdle. It's like a recycled pellet. And that recycled pellet is basically how all plastic products start. All plastic products are made from this hard little piece of plastic. And so we're really getting the material from from the nets to that stage and then helping partners across many industries integrate that recycled product into their supply chain. So we have in the past designed products. Kevin on our team is kind of a whiz in CAD and uh, designing products. And, and we've even built molds. So we've built mold cavities, picture like a big waffle maker for a skateboard where you're creating like two steel halves and shoot the plastic in and open the mold and out pops the skateboard. Like we've gone through that process, but now we're connecting kind of our material supply with larger companies that are, you know, integrating this into their supply chain. And and so we really can, can really broker that material all the way from the fisheries all the way through to the final product. And there's a growth curve there. So you, you know, you, it takes a little bit of time to learn how to use this material. Trek's using it now, I, I noticed, on a grip in addition to their water bottle basket, right? Yeah. So we actually just do the water bottle basket with Trek. They, they support a couple of recycling programs now. Oh, okay. um, But yeah, it's a good example because they're- Never mind that handle bit. That was, I hate that handle. It's yeah. a piece of crap. But it's a good example of like they started seeing and hearing about opportunities to recycle material and they've evaluated now their whole supply chain of how they they switch it over. So Boreo, obviously, like we are limited by the materials that we collect. And we always tell our partners this, like we're not in a position for you to switch over all of your, even all your plastic components to our material. Like we got to be specific of identifying the material that would feasibly and economically work to integrate our material. And there's challenges with that. I mean, it's economically, the price of plastic is so cheap that for a company to take a stand to integrate recycled plastic, they really have to make a commitment and find a way economically to make sure that it's going to work with their business model as well. Is is your end goal to to take every net out of out of the ocean? Where where like where do you see this? Yeah. I mean, I, I think when we started, we really saw the fishing nets as a starting point, but we envisioned this broader model that could move recycled material, kind of prevent waste, prevent a reliance on new plastics, and really integrate all these different sources. But getting into it now, we've been doing it for eight years, seven plus years, we can see the scale of even just the fishing net issue, right? And so, I mean, at this point, our our biggest plans in our, in our business model, like we don't even foresee taking over even a whole geographical area for recycled nets. Like I, I think, you know, the idea is that we can scale and replicate this program and that in our lifetime, based on the amount of waste that's happening every year, like we couldn't possibly, couldn't possibly propose to, to overcome that challenge. And so 
as a company, I think our, our goal is to keep scaling and replicating the solution and showing people that this is an alternative material. And then in the broader industry, like we're just, if you think about it, one link in this whole long chain of companies doing this for all types of plastic. And so I think we want to keep pushing on our end for fishing nets because that's what we're kind of experts at now in the space that we work in, but really be a part of that broader movement to say, hey, we have plenty of waste in the world. Like, let's make use of it. Let's keep it out of our oceans. Let's keep it out of underserved communities around the world. Let's do the right thing. And let's really go after the problem of of just creating new materials, you know, on an ongoing basis. And, and it's really a battle that we're all up against. We're Boreo um, probably takes a more pessimistic view than a lot of companies in that we don't like people to say, like, this product's saving the world because I think that's a lot of marketing plans are, hey, use this recycled material and you talk about how this is the solution for everything. I think we're a little bit more self-aware and we understand the amount of material being recycled and like we're kind of more like this is a fight and we're going to be in it to show people that we need to keep recycling more, of course, but we also need to change the whole system. You know, like we need to change the way companies design products. We're involved in that now as well with the companies we work with. We need to really design our way out of it, right? We're not going to recycle our way out of the crisis. Like we need to engage with designers and companies and have them realize that like, let's change the way products are made, not just by incorporating recycled plastic, but maybe designing them so they don't create plastic waste in the first place. And, and I think that's that's really where this movement's going is really attacking attacking the issue from from a couple different angles. Yeah, I think I have a quote. I, I do have a quote here from you that where you said, "Treat the treat the root of the waste problem." And mm-hmm. I do think it's a design problem. Uh, I saw another quote, not um, from a supply company that's trying to change how school supplies and recyclability. Mm-hmm. And their quote was, "Waste is a design flaw." It yeah. is. Yep, and and I think. I mean, using real numbers, like if you look at the plastic crisis, which it is a crisis, I mean, recycling is, it is one of the solutions, but I mean, as a society, like in the world right now, we're making 300 million new tons of new plastic every year and we're recycling less than 10% of that. So do the math every year, we're behind the curve. And guess what? The plastics industry wants to make 600 million tons of plastic in the next few decades, a year. Of course they do. So of course, yeah. It's um, it's really going to take heavy lifting to, yes, we should recycle what's out there and make use of it. Yes, we should help people redesign products. And, and really, like, this is a really optimistic in my lifetime, but I hope that, you know, even kids in elementary school and high school can look at the, this this problem and say, what we're doing is not sustainable. Like even this concept of having to deal with trash is not sustainable because the planet is finite. We can't just keep filling up landfills. So why don't we redesign the whole system and work with products in a way that we don't have to design them for an end of life. We just design them for many more lives. You know, think about a refrigerator that is designed in a way the company takes it back and takes it apart and reuses the metal, reuses the plastic. It's doable. There's just some heavy lifting that has to go in to um, to make it happen. Yeah, it's about uh, almost it's almost about renting. Yeah, not not buying yep. the stuff, just rent it, right? And then at some point, the manufacturer takes it back, fixes it up, repurposes it, gets it back out there again, so it never winds up in a landfill. You know? Yeah. 
That's interesting. I love the way that you just said we have to design our way out of it. It's not a recycling problem, is it? Recycling could never could never um, bear the weight of the ongoing waste that's accumulating. I mean, I think even back to a simple component in a product, if a company is willing to first look at alternatives, is there a natural material? Like I, I'm really bullish on companies. This isn't our field. We're, we're not proposing to do it, but it's really a breakthrough in materials, right? Think about a plastic that's fully biodegradable and compostable made from natural materials that the the earth fully can compost it. There's a lot of plastics right now that are marketed that actually don't compost that well. But if we have breakthroughs in that material and we can look at a source of material that maybe takes carbon out of the atmosphere the way that it's grown, right? Think about seaweed or, or any um, specific crop where you actually benefit the climate by the way it's grown. And then you find a way to work with that material Hemp is a great example. There's some organic cotton products. There's some new plastic products being developed from interesting types of materials, food waste, seaweed, et cetera. Like those are the types of breakthroughs that we need to kind of overcome plastic. Because half of the plastic issue is single-use plastic, bottles, waste, packaging. And it's just there's not a lot of great economic alternatives for a lot of those short life. Like you think of like a yogurt container. Yes, you can make it in glass, but then it's heavier and costs more to move around. And then you have to recycle the glass. Like we really need yeah. a breakthrough in, in those um, in those short-term packaging assets. We got fooled by plastic, right? Because it's so we cheap did. and it, it's such a small footprint to, to make it. We, it sucked us right in, man. Tell everybody in your words, you know, why, David, why can't we just go out with a great big pool filter and lift this plastic out of the ocean and bring it back and then make more amazing things out of it? Yeah, I mean, the, the plastics issue, it's, it's really easy for people to think about like a broad brush solution. Like we have this issue where there's plastic in the world. You know, think about even, um, oh, what's the movie? It's like Wally, where they develop these <laughs> devices that go out and just have to pick up all the waste and take care of it. And it's just as a as a human being, we like to think about these broad solutions. Unfortunately, the difficult thing to think through is how complicated the waste issue is. The reality is that on an ongoing basis, we're dumping waste into the world. So first, we got to figure out a way to turn that tap off of waste that's that's going in on an ongoing basis. And then two, the real challenge is economically, like how do we get value out of that material that is waste? Like it, it's waste because someone looks at it, you look down and it, they discard it. They throw it in a bin or they throw it away because it's really hard to extract value out of that material. Well, that goes back to the design thing. We need to design products so that it, it we can extract value out of it. And then we need to build these systems for recycling and waste management that really separate those materials and, and put them into, into another life. And you think about the ocean where you go out and Yes, there's um, kind of this smog, as they describe it, of plastic waste floating around the ocean and getting just deposited on beaches and coming from rivers. But that's all different types of plastic. It's got different chemicals in it. It's contaminated. You can't just collect it in one swoop and melt it down and expect to make John's beautiful pair of glasses that he has on there. You know, like you need to you need to separate out that material and capture it at a point where it still has value because it does lose value in that environment. It's toxic. It's, it's hard to, to design with. It's hard to work with. And there's, there's actually some real case studies of that where companies 
have admitted that, yes, we intended to go out and take a bunch of mixed plastic and recycle it, but it's actually really hard to do. And this is why. And I think we needed as a society to learn those lessons. Like we can't just think about the earth like uh, our living room floor that you can take a vacuum cleaner to and it looks shiny after a couple of hours of of hard work. Like it, it's really going to take some some heavier lifting to solve the problem. Tell us about some of these other partnerships, Patagonia, Tin Shed, Next Wave. Yeah, so we've really been fortunate in, to, in addition to having some interest in our products, we've been able to partner with some companies and organizations that really see value in what we're doing. So Patagonia invested in us. They were the first ones that really recognized that in 2014. They've been a continued financial partner and project partner for the last six years and a big part of our story because obviously the credibility that they've given us, the funding and the really R&D from their team of experts has helped us with a lot of the breakthrough technologies. And it's an interesting one because we now provide materials through their supply chain plus they're an investor in us, plus we now work behind the scenes with some of their competitors. So it's a really interesting dynamic. Yeah, because their hat bills are made out of your your plastic yep. now. Yeah. Yep. We've had um, had a couple of, several R&D projects, a couple have commercialized and a couple are going to market next year. And, you know, it's it's been interesting to be a part of that journey with them because at first it was, we need to develop this and get it to market. And then now we're starting to think about how we expand it together. And, and that actually looks like them being willing to go to market with us and talk with some of their competitors to adopt it, which has been an interesting process. Um, and then about beyond- the marketability of this. Sure. When would a company ever showcase a hat that they make and peel away the material and brag about what the bill of the hat is made out of? Yeah. Right? I mean, it. And it's that was Crazy. a cool project because the goal of that was actually like, okay, every company in the outdoor industry sells a lot of hats. We know that it's one of hats and t-shirts are, there's a lot of work being done for organic cotton for t-shirts because we consume a lot of them. Hats, that piece of plastic in the brim, like the hat that John's wearing, it's just a hidden pretty good chunk of plastic that everyone and pretty much everyone in the US probably has several hats in their closet. And this is kind of a hidden use of new virgin plastic. And it was a way to kind of start this project of how we can move some recycled material. And it's really like, just like our skateboard, right? A company gets a hat and they understand, oh, it's functional. It works. It's made of this recycled material. What else could we do with this? Or how else could we source recycled material? And that that's kind of been our trajectory. John mentioned Trek. We met through a partnership with a with a group called Next Wave that kind of brings together companies to talk about recycled solutions. Human Scale was a part of that as a partner of ours as well on interior, so furnishing components. We work with a skateboard company now, a sunglass company, a surf fin company. We're just really fortunate to be able to get buy-in from these partners who really have expertise, quality products. And, and really a market reach that they're able to distribute the story. And for us, we always say that, yes, we're proud of recycling 2.3 million pounds of material. That's great. But we think about all of these companies are kind of like planting seeds for us, right? Every, every chair that's sold with the recycled material, every hat that's sold, they're engaging with these consumers and really getting them to almost be ambassadors. Maybe not all of them are like John and they become 
I want a plastic audit and I'm conscious of my straws now. And and David's making me buy more ethical clothing and all these (laughs) other things. But I mean, it's, it's having a difference. It's making people think differently about the way products are sourced. And so I think that that in addition to actually moving tangible amount of material, that's probably one of our biggest impacts that we can be a part of is helping disseminate the feasibility of this, of this project and inspiring companies and people to try to do the right thing. How can designers do more or what advice would you have for designers? I would say designing products to have a longer life for anything is a really great step. And to John's point, there's a hard buy-in there because that usually means it's more expensive. But if you look at like a leasing or a rental model or like a payment plan model, maybe consumers can can get like, oh, you know, I can buy, let's just say, just say I can buy this widget for $20 and use it for a year. And this company is making a widget, but it costs $60, but they're saying it's going to last 10 years. So maybe that company has to do a better job of saying, we're going to guarantee this widget for 10 years. Yes, it's going to be $60, but it's going to last you five or 10 times as long as the other company. So I think thinking about that, that that would be a huge improvement for a waste problem if we just had products and service longer. And then looking at the the responsible use of materials, you know, if you can use a natural material, which isn't always possible, but you, you can think about like a hemp or a cotton or even a sustainable wood, oftentimes end of life becomes a little bit easier because, right, we don't have a bunch of cotton floating around our ocean polluting, like it, it's going to biodegrade over time or it's going to be reused. So yeah, and, and then when you do have to use plastic, it's can we use a, a post-consumer recycled, so a source of waste essentially that we're providing value to that adds benefit. And if you do use plastic, can we design the product in a way to make sure that it's not going to go right back into the waste stream? And for us, that's meant like we avoid packaging altogether because we see the solution for packaging being truly biodegradable and composting material because of the fact that people don't see value a lot of times in in, in packaging. They just get it, throw it away or dispose of it. They're not going to want to return the packaging. Whereas a product, you have an opportunity if you put plastic into a product, it's valuable. And as a company, think about like, you could provide incentives to that consumer to keep them loyal to your brand. Like, hey, buy this product or lease it. And at the end of life, if you return it to us, we'll give you a discount on the next one or some form of incentive where that material can go back into the supply chain. We don't, for packaging, I think it's much more moving towards a way, the way that we deliver products. So think about a grocery store, something like a bulk store where you have to go with your own packaging and collect it could be a a solution that's scalable and then shipping products much more towards can I grow some mushrooms which people are doing and some algae foam and some more sustainable recycled versions of paper and wood and these other materials where they can literally just be composted or buried if they had to be and they would just disintegrate as opposed to landfills piling up with plastic and polymer materials that are really hard to recycle. I think, you know, good designers today are really looking at these material selections that you're talking about right now. The good designers are making conscientious decisions, right? They're removing materials from what they specify, which, which, which in turn will 
uh, will catalyze manufacturers then to say, well, if nobody's going to specify this, then I'm going to stop making product out of it. I mean, that's designers have the opportunity to stand on the gas pedal like that and yeah. force action. Which and is it's great. Cool. Like, I, I think that's the, that's that notion of those designers can really, they can redesign this waste issue. And it's not always easy. Like I, I mean, through, some of the forums that John's looped us into have kind of gotten an insight into the design world. I remember one specific moment I was at a dinner and a designer stood up and he said, you know, I approached my team and said that there was this specific component where I wanted to use wood for this plastic component. And they ran through the life cycle assessment and said, well, actually all of our studies show that it's better to use plastic for this, um, this case, which sometimes it could be that the plastic lasts longer and you have to make less. But there was another gentleman who stood up who was more on the environmental side. And he said, do you know, like, tell me a little bit about the study that was taking place. And he talked about the energy required to make the plastic and the energy required to extract the wood. And, and basically what the designer was saying was that he was like, my my uh, team was telling me there's better just to use even a new plastic that the recycled plastic was too costly on an energy standpoint to use. And so as a designer, he was almost handicapped with this information. And uh, the perspective was really interesting because the environmentalist came back and said, do you have a landfill in your zip code? And he, and the designer said, no. And he said, do you have a plastic production facility in your zip code? He said, no. And he's like, well, what these studies don't factor in are what happens to that plastic at the end of life because it's polluting someone's backyard or or neighborhood. And then to make that plastic, there's emissions and contaminants going into the air that aren't factored in. You're not taking into account human health and, yeah. and the impact on the environment. And until those studies really comprehend the full life cycle of that material, you're not able to make the best decision with the information you have. We really yeah, need how, to broaden yeah. the scope. So. How many of us come home at the end of the day to find an oil refinery in our neighborhood, right? That's, that's yep. the socioeconomic part of this equation that we have to figure out. I also feel, going back to this idea when we first talked about regulation, and I think there could be a lot more done around a tax. That, yep. And that would, that would help with these longer life products that cost more if you're taxing things that have to go to the to the land more quickly and i feel like that really needs to be part of the story and hopefully it will be someday it's easy to knock on america sometimes but you look at europe and i mean europe is already head and shoulders ahead of us in this spectrum of of kind of rewarding the use of responsible supply chains and it's exactly right like basically the way the system's set up now is that these companies are able to really profit off of this cheap material that they don't have to worry about the implications. They're able to, through um, our loose environmental regulations, produce as much as they want of it. We can keep fracking cheap fossil fuels, making the material polluting surrounding neighborhoods. And then at the end of life, if that plastic becomes a contaminant in the ocean or in an underserved community anywhere in the world, company who made the material isn't there's no penalty for that and so really the 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 true cost of that material which is the impact to the environment and the impact of those communities those companies making the plastic are really being subsidized by all of us right now in that they're not paying for all those externalities we are as a society and so 
to your regulation point, Bert, I completely agree. Like, I think there needs to be a direct connection to these externalities of air pollution coming from production and, and physical pollution coming from waste. And we need to find a way to incentivize companies to use the right material and de-incentivize producers to continue making these harmful um, impacts. Well said. Yeah, absolutely. What's next for Boreo, man? Looking down the road. Get through 2020, I think is, oh. is a good goal. Yeah. God, put 2020 on a shelf, man. Let's get it out. Uh, no, I mean, I think we're, we're honestly just fortunate to be, you know, viable and working through problems. Like we see the harsh reality, especially for small businesses of even getting through a difficult period. And and I, I think, unfortunately for us, we kind of hit our stride just as, just as the world went into a social and environmental crisis. But at the same time, we were in a position at the beginning of 2020 that really helped us weather the storm a little bit. And we're kind of looking obviously beyond it now. I think as a society, I was talking about earlier, it's hard to see solutions right now. And there's so much uncertainty in the immediate future, but we have to envision this world where we get to a a better state than we're in now. And so, you know, looking ahead, certainly we're thinking about scale and how we improve the systems that we collect the nets and how we disseminate this message to partners, um, even around something like we just mentioned, the, the social impacts of making plastic like how do we make that a bigger part of this because you know it's easy for someone to say hey it's it's ugly to think about a nice beach in the in southeast asia that has plastic everyone can get on board with keeping plastic out it's harder to convey why companies should use recycled plastic so that like a fence line community in houston doesn't have to breathe in contaminants from their production of plastics right and if you combine all those you really add force to the movement of like okay we can't be a part of these negative issues with pollution and, and waste. Let's really work together in our role, Boreo, with companies to have them do things a better way. And even beyond just adopting our material, you know, we're really engaged with our partners and want to be engaged in, in helping them see kind of the other side of, of those supply chains. Well, sign us up. We'll go to Southeast <laughs> Asia and collect nets, right, John? Yeah, <laughs> just not right now. Yeah. <laughs> No, I, and yeah, I mean, that's a, that's another reality is that um, unfortunately for a recycling model, it's hard to adapt to a remote work. And I mean, this is the first time for me personally that I haven't been to an airport in even three months um, in the last 15 years, which is crazy um, to think. I mean, we've all been moving so fast. It's been a good time for us to reset, but obviously we have to get back moving again and we have to get um, get out there really to really get feet on the ground. But yeah, I mean, we're kind of, navigating and planning and adjusting like everyone else and then getting ready for for what's what's coming next no kidding well we're we're up we're up with our hour and i'm sure your wife needs to get back to her (laughs) dancing or not wife yet girlfriend but she would she would like that comment (laughs) oops verda come on no it's fine Awesome. Well, listen, tell uh, Ben and Kevin that I said hello, and uh, we would love to have had them on, but we're we're just looking for attractive people for this podcast. So (laughs) that's why we chose you. (laughs) I'll pass on the message. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Okay. Thanks so much, David. I appreciate it. It was great to see you. Yeah. Glad you're doing well. Yeah. Hanging in there, but we'll talk soon. All right, buddy. Stay in touch. Take right. care. Bye-bye. Yep. Yeah.